If we've never met yet, my name is Peter. I'm one of the elders here at Halifax Christian. And typically on the last Sunday of the year, after Christmas, before the new year, um, it's a different group on the stage here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say I represent the old people on stage today. They're young kids compared to me, though. Um, our, uh, our two main preachers, pastors, are away on holidays right now. And I have the privilege of being able to share a message from God's Word today. It's an incredibly simple message. And what I want to do is I want to begin this message by showing you a video clip. Now, I'm not going to apologize for the spoiler alert. You've had, you've had a few decades to see this movie. So if, if I bust something for you, it's bad on you. The movie is the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It's kind of the big scene at the end. And I'm going to warn you right now, there are genuinely frightening scenes if, if that bothers you. So let's have a look and then uh, we'll chat about it. I'm not here to talk about eternal life and salvation through an ornament. I'm here to talk about eternal life and abundant life that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. What I want to talk about today is a continuation of the messages from our pastors uh, in the month of December. They, they shared four messages on gifts from God, Christmas gifts. And we learned about the gift of hope, the gift of peace, the gift of joy, and the gift of love. And what I want to do is I want to suggest that there's actually a couple more gifts. I'm going to spend most of this, this message looking at one of them, and that's the gift of choice. See, the first four gifts are something that God gives us, but they have to be unwrapped. They have to be opened. They have to be used. They have to be played with. And if we don't do that, then we're not making appropriate use of that other gift, the gift of choice. And so what I want to do is I, I, want, to, I want to examine this thing called choice. I want to just look a little bit into what it, what it means to choose, what it means to, to, to have freedom, because I think all of us would agree that the ability to choose is, a, is kind of a measure of freedom. <clears throat> Many people would say that their complete measure of freedom is their ability to make choices unhindered by anyone else. No constraints. I, I choose to do what I want to do. That's, in a sense, a measure of freedom. Or you could say it's a measure of control. So with that, let's just start the conversation. I want to show you a picture. Here's a family watching television. Take a look at this picture. Who in this picture do you think has control? Who is the one making choice? And you'll just think for a second and let me reveal the full picture. Who's in control in that picture? The little girl. She's the one making the choice. She's the one that has freedom. Now you can say, yeah, but her parents are probably telling her what to do. If you look at the smile on her face, nobody's telling her what to do. <clears throat> uh, let's look at another picture. Here's a guy also <clears throat> enjoying the freedom of choosing, and there's nobody around yanking his chain, nobody telling him what to choose. Uh, he's not looking so happy. So what's his problem? I mean, clearly that's a look of, of utter boredom. His problem is that Netflix only has 1,400 titles. His problem is his cable channels only have 800 choices. And so right now, we all know we've played this game or we've seen somebody play this game. We all know what's going on. He's not looking to see what's on. He's looking to see what else is on because apparently he's already bored with what's on. This is an example of freedom. And sometimes freedom isn't feeling so free. It doesn't always feel like we have control. Take a look at the next picture. This is a famous landmark study in the world of social science that was done around the year 2000. And if any of you are interested in this, uh, 
in the actual science paper. Um, just, just let me know and I'll send it to you. It's just affectionately known as the JAM study. And what they did was, uh, over a period of two weeks, two weekends, uh, I think they used a farmer's market. Uh, one weekend, they had six jars of jam. Um, I'm not sure which came for Six jars of jam at, at a booth to, to test. The second week, they had 24 jars of jam for people to test. And here's the interesting results of the experiment. And if you've never seen this before or heard of it, it's actually quite shocking. So let's look at the number of people who actually stopped by. In other words, the attractiveness of these displays. In the weekend where there were 24 jars of jam on the table, 60% of the people walking by actually stopped at the booth. When there was only six jars of jam, only 40% of the people stopped by the booth. Now let's look and see how many people that went to the booth actually sampled jams. Turns out there's actually not that much of a difference. Whether you got 24 jars of jam or six jars of jam, the number of people who actually sample jams is about the same. People sample about one and a half jams each if you average it out. Now here's the real shocking reveal. And when they did this, it blew everybody away and all kinds of books have been written on this result, this jam study. Here's the number of people that actually purchased. I want you to absorb that for a second. Because it is a shocking truth of, of, of human physics, the dynamics of human beings. What's this study saying? What this study says is that choice is actually not a measure of freedom. Choice can actually be debilitating. It's kind of a paradox. Choice can shut us down. We become paralyzed with choice. And we all know when we go to the grocery store and you want to buy a, a bottle of salsa and they have 400 bottles of salsa, I end up coming home with no salsa because I can't make a choice. We know when we're sitting in front of all those channels or all those choices on Netflix that we end up just doing something else because we can't make a choice. It's not intuitive. The average human being wouldn't, wouldn't have intuited that, but this is part of who we are. Here's another, another image. This is a book, a uh, very famous book uh, written, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, probably more than 15 years ago. A.J. Jacobs, he wrote a number of books, but this one was fascinating. I read the book. It's called The Year of Living Biblically. And he's not a believer, but what he decided to do was to take the Bible and as literally as possible live what it says. And so because the Old Testament is like three times longer than the New Testament at least, he spent the first nine months living out the Old Testament, law for law, word for word, letter for letter, 613 rules, followed them blindly, no questions asked. Then the last three months he lived the New Testament rules. And what he found was a shocking revelation to himself. It actually, it really, it caught his attention. What he did not expect is that when he was living through those Old Testament rules, he found that having all of these rules and these constraints and these boundaries on himself actually was kind of liberating. It took away his need to be choosing what to do on a regular basis because the choices were made for him. And the shocking reveal to himself was that initially I would have thought that that would have felt stultifying. It would, it, would, it would have been oppressive. But he said, I actually found exactly the opposite. I actually found a sense of liberation and freedom by, by having the choices made for me. It challenges our, our assumptions about what we think control means, what freedom is. It challenges our assumptions about choice. Let me tell you about Bob. Bob is a, is a new friend of mine. Uh, we developed a, a relationship, uh, a distance relationship. We've never actually met yet. A couple of months, I'm, I'm old enough to be his father. A couple of months we've been in this relationship. And 
he, he kind of sought me out, and it was, it was actually fascinating how that started. But what I've learned from Bob so far, uh, he's had a very hard life, very hard life. He's gone through two or three marriages. Uh, he's dealt with some very se- serious betrayals. He spent time in prison. He's had actually a very difficult life. But what he has learned from this, and this is interesting because I know that he's a believer in God, but we have not had enough conversations yet to know what does that actually mean. I don't know if he and I have the same idea about that. I'm suspecting not based on our conversations, but that's ahead of us, and I'm looking forward to that conversation. But what he has discovered, and his prison time kind of, it kind of solidified this in him, is that this thing called forgiveness, it's a real thing, and it's a choice. It's not an emotion. He said bitterness and anger and resentment, those are emotions. And he said, I just woke up one day and I realized that the idea of being vengeful, of getting even, of harboring resentment and bitterness, he said, it was making me feel sick inside. And I didn't like feeling sick inside. And I've just chosen to forgive because I like the feeling that that gives me inside. Now, I know from the kind of counseling I do, the discipling, the mentoring, that forgiveness is actually a very advanced state, stage of maturity. And here is this guy, I'm going to call him a young guy, who's come to this conclusion, not because of any words in the Bible, this is a pure emotional decision. He came to realizing, I hate choosing these other things. What he's realized is that I'm not actually choosing them, they've chosen the emotional state for me. I have to choose to rise above that. And he has chosen forgiveness, and he struggles with it, and we're talking about you know, that and, and, and lots of other things. But that just it really impressed me, that this young guy has learned this the hard way, brutally hard way, not because of some edict somewhere, but because experience has said, this is a better choice. I'm learning to make a better choice. This message this morning, folks, is actually a very, very simple message. I want to do, what I want to do now is I want to get into the theology of choice. Let's look at what the scriptures say. And I'm not going to go to the cliche, the cliche passages, you know, where, where uh, Jacob says, you know, as for me and my house, we will, we will serve the Lord. Elijah on Mount Carmel saying, you know, you're wavering between two opinions. You have to make up your mind. You've heard those kind of messages. I want to actually look at the actual theology of choice. Where does it come from? What is it supposed to do for us? What hasn't it done for us? And at the end of this, I want to put a practical spin on this, is how you can learn to make better choices. So I have to start in the Garden of Eden. Let's, uh, let's go way back to the, the, the Garden of Eden. Um, and God has been creating things. And in verse 26 of chapter 1, he says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. Well, he didn't make us to look like him. God doesn't look like us. Certainly wouldn't want to look like me. And he wouldn't want to look like you either, so don't sneer at me. He can, do, he can do better, right? This is a spiritual state. There's a spiritual side to God that is now part of us. And so of all the creatures, we were different from all the creatures because we were made in this spiritual state. We had the ability to do a number of things that animals couldn't do. And one is to be able to choose to write our own script, our own programming, to choose and everything was working really well until another character showed up in the garden, and we know it's the evil one, Satan, the serpent, and he introduced another paradigm. He introduced another choice. Rather than just choosing God and the things of God, he offered an alternative. He offered things like doubt and rebellion 
and disobedience. And he offered those as an alternative. And we know that we made a bad choice and they, the two of them in the garden screwed it up for the rest of us. We're now all struggling with those decisions and we now all struggle with making good choices. And at some point, this is when someone wants to jump in and say, yes, but you know, we do have free will. And this is where the Apostle Paul will just look at you and he would say, yeah, you, you really don't. There are only certain people who actually have free will. Free will is not the myth that it's cracked up to be. Free will is something that we were created to have and we did have it and we threw it back at God and we no longer have free will because none of us actually has the power and the ability to withstand the evil one. He is just stronger than us. He is more powerful in every way. He's sneakier. He's just not someone we can resist alone. The key is alone. Here's what Paul says in Romans 8, which is the chapter you go to in the Bible if you're trying to find something and you can't find it, you go to Romans 8 because it's probably there. He says, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. So much for free will. Maybe this is the first time you've heard somebody suggest that free will is actually not something that every human being enjoys. But what we read through the rest of the passages that I'm going to share is that the paradigm shifts back in our favor. Free will is given back to us once again because of the work that Jesus did by the choices he made through his entire life with the final choice of dying on the cross for us. Because when he did that, he defeated not only death, because we know that he rose again and we get that opportunity, he also defeated sin, both the power and the guilt of sin the power and the guilt of sin. He defeated those for us so that he can give us free will back again. So let me give you the summary of this theology and then I'm going to give you some more passages. First, according to Romans 8, living by the sinful nature, we are not in control. We are simply doing the bidding of the evil one. Secondly, living by the spiritual nature, we are in control and free to choose the choice to obey God. And he actually says that. He says, if, if, if you allow the spirit to control you, then you will have choice. You say, wait a second. If I let anything control me, then I have, I have actually given up choice. And God just smiles and says, and therein lies the paradox. Therein lies the paradox. Because you think that, okay, well, if I'm going to choose to let the spirit control me, then I don't really have choice. The alternative is to not choose the spirit and you will remain in your carnal nature, and the evil one is already running rampant through your life and taking away your choices, whether you thought he was or not. And so we actually do have a decision to make. Here's what Paul says in Galatians. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And he's talking about the slavery of having to obey the law. Christ freed us for that. He freed us for the sake of being free. It's kind of like a... Weird sentence structure. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Duh. Of course he set us free so we could be free. Paul's got so much more intent wrapped up in that. It's so that we can be free to be making choices moment by moment. Here's what Jesus says in John 8. I tell you the truth that anyone, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus is trying to appeal to us as being members of the family of God, not as an outsider wishing to get in. He's just saying, here are, here are some of the inherent privileges 
when you're part of the family of God. There are, there, there's an intrinsic nature to how a human being changes when we become part of the family of God. Going back to what Paul says in Romans 8, Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. There's nothing more liberating than just reading healthy portions of Scripture and understanding its importance to us in our everyday life. Finally, in Romans 7, if I back up a little bit, that's the chapter where Paul talks about the civil war that goes on inside of the mind and the heart of every person. He says, but now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit. The new way is a paradox. Paradox is something that it's two things that can't possibly make sense together, but they do. They, They can't both be true at the same time, but they are. The world is filled with paradoxes. Christianity is almost one big paradox. The paradox in Christianity is that the only way that we get choice back is by giving it to God. We present it to him as an offering and then he puts it back in our hands, thereby giving us what we had at the very beginning, free will. But he says, but now, (laughs) choose wisely. The old guy in the video clip, he's saying, you have some choices here. The right answer is here. Now choose wisely. And the two guys that chose the cup, they both used a different different paradigm, different perspective for deciding which would be the cup of Jesus. We all have ways of making decisions. What Paul is saying is let's appeal to the Spirit of God who's living in you. Jesus says, choose to be a son and daughter and no longer a slave. So if you, if you are, Paul calls the church members, church family, children, dear children. I guess I'm an elder here. I guess I'm an old guy. So it's not inappropriate for me to call you sons and daughters. My sons and daughters, let me, let me suggest to you, no, let me take the word suggest away. Let me say to you what Debbie and I would always say to our kids whenever they would leave the house. When I got to the age when they would be leaving the house and going out for hours at a time, terrifying for parents, I know, when they would leave the house, we would always say the same thing to them, and I want to say the same thing to you now. Make good choices. Make good choices. Last night, I was trying to think of how I was going to land this plane today. I just sat down and started making a list of, here are some of the choices that I would like you to learn to make. Choose God rather than the world, and he will meet all your needs. Choose Christ rather than the evil one and become a child of God. Choose worship rather than self-indulgence and give God his due. Choose hope rather than despair and believe in a better future. Choose peace rather than anxiety and be free of worries and fear. 
Choose joy rather than ingratitude and turn what you have into enough. Choose love rather than indifference and direct your focus outward. Choose patience rather than taking offense and see others with God's eyes. Choose forgiveness rather than bitterness and understand God's nature. Sorry, understand and choose forgiveness rather than bitterness and allow uh, your heart to heal. Sorry. Choose fellowship rather than aloneness and understand God's nature. Choose purity rather than carnality and be holy as God is holy. Choose faith rather than sin and prove that you believe in the gospel. Choose faith sharing rather than silence and point others to God. Choose obedience rather than autonomy and be free. I could go on and I could go on. There's a whole bunch of good choices that I would love you to make. But this last one, it's kind of a catch-all. Choose obedience because we stink at this. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands and say, how many of you here struggle with obedience? Because there's going to be one or two hands that are not going to be in accord with all the other hands, and then we're going to actually see what denial looks like. We all struggle with obedience. I'm not talking about obedience to God, but I can go further. Even obedience to yourself, you can have your own principles and values that you don't even obey. We struggle with that. I've said, I've said this before, and I want, I want to say this again. It's very common in many churches, and hopefully not this church, but probably us too. It's very common on a, on a Sunday morning worship gathering where the preacher gets up and he preaches a, a, a very typical three-point sermon. God is good, you're not, go try harder. But it doesn't work, and we know it doesn't work, and we know why it doesn't work, but there's something that's just missing in the equation. What's missing in the equation is the practical piece to be able to teach everybody how to actually do that. Some of you are going to say, you know, I try, I try to be obedient. I try to do the things that God wants me to do. You try to do those list of things that you just mentioned, Peter. I can't. I just keep failing. I know that God's spirit is in me, and I, and I, just, I, I just don't understand why it's not working. I don't feel the power that is promised to us through the scriptures. I just don't know how to please him. Two things I want to say to that. First, the main thing that pleases God is faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So it starts there. But secondly, there's one more gift that I haven't spoken about yet. We've been speaking about it in this church for a few years. And come in, in 2020, you're going to be hearing about it a whole lot more because it's actually, it's that final piece. It's the fourth point to that three-point sermon that's been missing or we're not doing very well. It's the gift of process. The gift of process. Now, if you're like me, if you spend any time dealing with government officials or worked with government, the word process makes you want to gag. Process is only bad when it's not done well. Process, if it's done really well, is like magic. Except there's a different word for it in the church. It's called discipleship. Discipleship, process of how to make good choices is, is what Jesus taught his closest followers, how to teach others how to make good choices. It begins by us making our own choice to commit to him. That's still something you need help from God to do. But to commit to him. One of the first early songs that we sang is about committing to him. Commit to him our time and our energy. I commit my time to you, Lord, to spend time in your word just to have a clue what you're talking about. I commit to you, Lord, to be able to spend time just talking to you. 
And Lord, I need to commit to spending time with other Christians because I cannot do this alone. I never could and I never will be able to. And sometimes that journey isn't by joining a group. We got groups. Sometimes it's about just spending time with one other person who's just a little ahead of you on the journey. And you can say, I, you know what? Can you just show me what you know? And if you're the one that's being asked, you can say, I don't know how to get down there. The person says, that's fine. I just want to get to where you are. Because this is what discipleship is. It's a process. And it's a gift from God for all of us to learn how to make good choices. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, I just pray that all of us make good choices. Those good choices started with the free will that you gave us back when Jesus won that victory on the cross. He made a lifetime of good choices which led him to that so that we can now have that gift of choice. Help us, Father, to choose to spend time with you in your word and in prayer. Help us to choose to spend time with others and to learn from each other. Father, this is the path that you've given to us. And I just pray, Father, that all of us learn in the coming year how to make good choices.